at uh, Matthew chapter 28 on page 706. And uh, we're going to read the story of when Jesus came back to life again and what that was like for the people who uh, first witnessed that. Matthew chapter 28 on page 706. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy as they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers, go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. And now if you'd like to turn over uh, to Philippians chapter 3. This will be the passage that, uh, one of the passages that Peter will be explaining to us. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 and following. And uh, you'll find that on page 832. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Okay, um, well, let's um, pray together before we consider this important topic of the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to us in uh, giving us insight into deep mysteries from your word, which talk about the completeness of life as you've created it. Father, we pray that as we consider these things now, we'll be people who grow in our assurance of our salvation with you and enjoy you as our God. Father, thank you for this time now. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We read the section from Philippians earlier that spoke about how some people are enemies of the cross Uh, Their God is their stomach and their citizenship isn't on heaven because they have their minds on earthly things. As the founder of communism, Karl Marx seemed to be somebody who fitted that kind of bill. He was one man who had a massive impact on the world. He created a very big splash. In fact, in the wake of his uh, teaching and his writings, communism became the kind of government under which close to half of the world's entire population had lived at one time. And Karl Marx's influence continues to this day. Marx himself lived at a time during the Industrial Revolution when there were a lot of problems for working people. Small businesses found it difficult to compete with the newly formed factories which were springing up around the world. And people moved away from their rural areas, their local towns and their farms into the city areas in search of jobs. Because of this great uh, surge of uh, people to be employed, the net result was that wages were kept very low, the factory hours were long and children were often used to keep the costs of manufacturing goods down. It was in that kind of setting that Karl Marx came to the conclusion that the history of society is the history of the class struggle. The kind of feeling that's uh, captured in that sort of sentence is picked up uh, in one of the songs about the poor in the musical Les Miserables, saying, for the poor, life is a struggle, it's a war, and there's nothing that anyone's giving. Another day, wasting away, what is it all for? Karl Marx's influence had a big impact on the world, but some people even think that he impacted Australia as well. Some have seen the events of the 1890 Great Strike that took place in Australia as confirmation of Marx's declarations about the inevitability of class warfare. As one commentator put it, class warfare on the scale of 1890 had never taken place in Australia before and has not been repeated. During that time, some 50,000 workers and unionists in Australia walked off the job, and also in 10,000 in New Zealand, uh, from the months between August and November during 1890. As an atheist and as a materialist, Marx was someone who only believed in the here and now. He was critical of the church, and argued that it's only men who make religion. 
He said religion was just a tool of the wealthy to make the oppressed satisfied with their lot in life. The only reason that people look to the sky is that they feel alienated from this life and they've lost hope in salvation from earth. This is what Marx said also. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. It's the sentiment of a heartless world. Religion is the soul of soulless conditions. And he said religion is the opium of the people. But what do you think? Do you think he was right? Is what we believe about God a drug for creatures like ourselves? Is it true that we only look to God for salvation because we collectively stand together as a group of people who've lost all hope that we will win the big one, that big red ball or one of those truckloads of cash in the Oslotto trucks that can't seem to get under bridges? Is that what this is all about? This meeting's just our drug. Our hope in God is just our drug to get through life. Well, Marx believed in the material reality only, no other dimensions of our existence. He just believed in the here and now. But the Bible's view of reality is far grander than what Marx came up with. It's quite different. Because the Bible makes the case that our lives have got meaning as we live with God as our God and we his people both in this life and in the life to come. In fact, the Bible presents great expectations for us as God's people from his word. We see these revealed in the whole sweep of God's plan. Uh, Initially, we see that God has a special place where he plants his people, Eden, and it's a pristine environment. Adam and Eve are placed there in Eden, separated from the rest of the world by God's grace alone. And people enjoy something of a royal role. They have this uh, kingly rule over all of the other creatures and over all of creation. And not only that, they are called upon to serve God, to work the garden and to take care of it and to serve in the very presence of God. And so what we see from the very start is a, a royal and a somewhat priestly role that people have to serve in the presence of God and to rule over creation and it seems probably to extend the borders of Eden as they fill the earth and subdue it. We have a picture in Genesis 2 of the harmony that people have both with creation, each other, and with God. But unfortunately, of course, as we know, the reality was this paradise was lost when Adam and Eve were tempted to take from the forbidden fruit, uh, seeing that it was good and pleasing to the eye, but also desirable for gaining wisdom, knowing that if they took it, they would be like God, knowing good and evil. And that was the attraction, that they would be like God. And the results of that rebellion would now be that they were put out of the garden. And life as we know it, outside Eden, is difficult until we die. It's interesting to note in the Bible storyline that Israel also followed the same fate. They lived in a type of Eden as well. They lived in the promised land. But because of their failure to be faithful as God's people, they also were put out for their rebellion. God called them to be his priestly royalty. We see that in Exodus chapter 19. A priestly royalty, the light of the world, to show the world how to live. And unfortunately, they failed in their role to be the light of the world. 
But moving ahead to the very end of the story, past the way of redemption that Scott spoke to us about on Good Friday, where we've been redeemed through the work of Christ, we can see the very end of the story is still a return to something of a a pristine environment, a peace with God and with each other. And we see that in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. Let me read a little bit from Revelation 21 verse 1. This is at the very end of the sweep of creation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So we see at the end of God's plans for the whole sweep of creation a return to Eden-like conditions, but there will be no longer any curse and people will reign with God and the Lamb, which is our Lord Jesus, forever. But this reality which the Bible moves towards is not something that's only you know, tacked onto our Bibles at the very end. Uh, there are hints as we move through the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, about this type of new creation situation, this new resurrected situation. One of them's in uh, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, which says, But your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. And as we've been looking at in the Daniel series, there's also a hope of an end time. And Scott will probably be preaching on this in Daniel 12, verse 2, which says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. In the New Testament, we also see a prefiguring of this resurrection age when Jesus spoke to Martha at the time that Lazarus died. Martha said, Lord, if you've been here, my brother wouldn't have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So there's an expectation amongst the Jews that there will be a time when they're all raised as God's people to reign with God as king and rule over the earth, and they're looking forward to that. Paul also puts this on the agenda in Acts chapter 23 when he stands on trial. He says, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. It's this resurrection of the dead, this last age, uh, which we see connected to the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection in point two of our outline is described as something of the the first fruits of that resurrected age. Uh, when there's a harvest, the first fruits taken uh, in knowledge that there's other fruits to come. We see this picked up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you'd like to read on with me in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 23. Get a page number on that, Scott? I've got the reference, just need a page number. Page 805 is... 
1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. This is where we're picking up Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection age. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which means people who've already died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So I'll read that again. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power, presumably evil powers. For Paul, the end game here is very clear. Jesus has been raised first. He is the first fruits. Then those believers who have trusted in Jesus, who have died, will also be raised. And then those people who are left at his second coming will be raised with him as well. Even the very bodies that we are going to be raised with are described as being something different. It's a bit mind-blowing when we think about these mysteries that we're at the limits of our very language to describe things which are beyond the grave. But the bodies that we are told that will be given aren't simply resuscitated bodies. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 42 to 49. And it picks up on what we've read in Philippians already. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown, that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Verse 49, and just as we've borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. The resurrected Lord Jesus seemed to have something of a different body as we saw from that reference in Matthew's Gospel about Jesus looking white like lightning. In John's Gospel we're told that he could walk through walls and he appeared to his disciples uh, in an instant. But he's not described as a, as a phantom, as so somehow he's still not real. Uh, he eats fish with his disciples and he also allows them to touch him. The bodies that we're looking forward to being resurrected with are going to be like Jesus' glorious bodies, which is what we saw in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. It says, We wait for him to transform our lowly bodies so that we'll be like his glorious body. Now, what we spoke about on Friday, on Good Friday, when the thief on the cross uh, looked forward to being in paradise with the Lord Jesus, seemed to be something of an expectation of life after death. That's what he was promised, that that day he would be in paradise with Jesus. But what we're looking at today is even going further beyond that, through to the very end game of created order. Somebody has dubbed this situation as life after, life after death. When new bodies are given to God's people that are kind of like Christ's resurrected body. Now if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed at this point and think these are concepts that are a bit too deep and weird to grasp, let me just say that 
This is the only God that we serve. This is the way that he's revealed to us his grand plans that we are to come to terms with as his people. And they seem to be a fair bit more grand than simply thinking of life as just ending at the grave, like Karl Marx thought it did. And while most of us understand something of uh, what Jesus' death has achieved for us, that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that he died in our place, not everybody, not all Christians, seem to understand how the resurrection fits into the puzzle of how God redeems his people. And so on point three of your outline, I've raised the question, what did the resurrection of Jesus actually achieve? So if you're turning to the outline, you'll see that there. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that something spectacular happens at Pentecost. That Jesus has brought in the last days. We now live in the last days. As the Holy Spirit has been poured out in accordance with the prophecy of Joel, which says in Joel 2.28 and Acts 2.16, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And Peter tells us in Acts 2.33, exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on what you now see and hear. So the first thing we see that the resurrection actually achieves is that Jesus receives the promised Holy Spirit and he pours it out. It's important to note that at this stage of the game, in these last days, it's not simply Jews who are now the people of God. The Gentiles now also become the new people of God as they receive God's spirit and put their trust in Jesus as their Lord. We see something of that happening in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius, who was an Italian, a Gentile, Romans, he served in the Italian regiment, uh, he became a Christian which is really a fulfilment that God's already made to the promises of Abraham that all kinds of people will be blessed. So we start to see with the Spirit being poured out, all kinds of people becoming the people of God. But the resurrection most importantly shows that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the long-awaited King of Israel. The Jews probably had a very different expectation about the kind of Messiah they were hoping for. And Jesus didn't seem to meet their expectations. In the first place, he failed to defeat the Roman overlords and his followers were people who didn't seem to stick very closely to the law. They didn't rebuild the temple, nor did Jesus, and he didn't re-establish the temple worship as they might have expected their Messiah to do so. Furthermore, Jesus died. They didn't expect their Messiah to be someone who was going to die. They expected their Messiah to be someone who triumphed over these Roman overlords, not to be defeated by them and to be strung up on a cross. And so this is the context in which we see Saul, the Pharisee, starts to take Christians and send them off and throw them into prisons. He thinks these people are getting in the way of God's kingdom coming because they're onto a dud Messiah. These people are following after someone who's already died. What's the point in following him? And so Paul carries Christians off to prison. He thinks they're on the wrong track. Well, that was until he was confronted personally with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that's when he changed his tune. He started to understand that, well, the resurrection age has already begun. He was expecting the resurrection age to happen only for the Jews in some kind of fashion, but it's happened already in one person, Jesus. 
And we can see that Paul changes his mind about Jesus as the Messiah after his Damascus Road experience. We see that in Acts chapter 19. I'll read that for us. Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised. After taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he could realise, that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Verse 22, Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. That is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. The point is that it's through the resurrection of Jesus that Paul came to realise that he was in fact the Messiah, that those Christians hadn't got it wrong in the first place. And we see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that it's by the spirit of holiness that Jesus is declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. It's through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that he's declared to be the Messiah. And so we see that the resurrection of Jesus achieves the pouring out of the Spirit, that Jews and Gentiles become the new people of God, and that Jesus shows that he was in actual fact the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel that the Jews had looked forward to. But what has all this got to do with us? Well, in point four of your outline, I raise the question, what is the significance of Jesus' resurrection for us? Well, in the first place, the Bible tells us that we're able to believe because of the Spirit of God being poured out to us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Paul says, Therefore I tell you, no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. No one who's speaking by the Spirit would say that. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. The Bible presents to us a picture of our humanity and as our nature as people who want to run away from God. We want to avoid God. We don't want to come into the light. We want to suppress the knowledge of God by nature. But if people come to that stage in life where they confess that Jesus is Lord, if you've come to that stage where you confess that Jesus is your Lord, the Bible tells us it's because of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit's the thing that's made the difference to bring us to that point. So the resurrection achieves Jesus pouring out the Spirit that we might be able to believe. That's the first point. The second thing is the Spirit is given as the deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance. We read about that in a number of places in the Bible. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4 and uh, chapter 5, we're told that the Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, those of you who are old enough to remember watching that show, Sale of the Century, uh, might recall that uh, 
people could actually win a whole lot of money and some great prizes, but they often played on in their competition to win the car, uh, often a BMW. Now, Tony Barber, he was a real extrovert, wasn't he? Tony Barber, he would say to these people, look, you know, if you've won this competition, here's the keys to the BMW. Tony Barber didn't take the BMW and sort of try to put it in their lap. When they got the keys, they knew that that was their deposit guaranteeing get, they would drive out of there in that BMW. And that's the same with the Spirit. Receiving the Spirit is this deposit saying, this is a foretaste of what's still to come. But this final significance for us concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is that we can be people who live in hope. If you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 22 to 25, this is where we'll cap off. Romans 8, 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently for it. Paul's reminding us here that we're not content with this stage of our existence. That like the rest of creation, we're longing for something better. And that we groan inwardly as we long for the adoption, our adoption as sons, as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. And we're sustained in that hope because Jesus has been raised first. He's been raised as the first fruits. He's the first of the harvest and we know that we're next in line. So that hope sustains us. We can see that because he's raised, we know we're going to be raised as well. Well, the question remains, what is your hope in? Karl Marx, as an atheist, was sceptical about dead men rising. Instead, he put his hope in something a bit different. He hoped for a classless society, that if we could only have a classless society, then there would be no need for the idea of God, no need for that opium. But I think we're a bit different in our hope to Marx. We don't only hold out for hope in this life, our lives which are ebbing away, our lives which we can't hold back the tide of ageing, all those precious and wonderful moments that we take our digital photos of that slip through our hands, that we can look at those great pictures and those wonderful times and we can spend a bit of time crying as we see that we're losing those years like some tears in the rain that just disappear. But as Christians, we don't grieve like the rest of humanity. We don't despair because we know that although things have been great, there are some wonderful moments, the best is still yet to come. When our mortal bodies, as Paul says, will be swallowed up by, not death, but swallowed up by life. So our hope is far beyond the grave. It's far beyond the here and now. Our hope is in God who helps us to wait patiently for the adoption of ourselves and the redemption of our bodies. When the dead will rise as Jesus has already been raised.
Let's give thanks to God that we have that hope. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for these deep and mysterious things which you've in your kindness revealed to us. Father, we thank you that Jesus was the Messiah to come, that he is the King, the Lord of all, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Father, we give you thanks that he promises to come again to take us to be with you, that we might enjoy unspoilt fellowship where there's no longer any curse. Father, we look forward to that time for our redeemed bodies that will be like our Lord's glorious body when we can live with you as our God face to face and enjoy reigning with you as co-heirs with Christ. Father, we thank you for this great hope. We pray that it would help strengthen us during the, the challenging years that we live in this fallen world. And Father, we thank you for this, this time we've had to remind ourselves of the grandeur of, of your plans for your creation and your commitment to it. And Father, we thank you for, for loving us and bringing us to the point where we would live with you as our God and ask that you would help us to grow strong and mature as your people. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.